Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm editor Pete White, got with us today solar analyst Andreas Fontenar. Hello. We have hydrogen aviation analyst Bogdan Evramuta. Hello. Uh, we have our EV analyst Connor Watts. Hello. And, but today, no Simon Thompson, he's, all, he's away. Uh, we're pretty pleased with today's issue. Uh, we recommend you take a look at it and read it. It's a free publication. Uh, it serves to advertise our services as a forecasting team. Um, you can find it at www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click on energy and just start reading. Uh, on this week's podcast, we'll talk about the US Commerce Department's initial decision uh, that around half the companies it was investigating in Asia are in fact trying to dress up some part of Chinese technology, solar technology, as their own to circumvent uh, dumping tariffs. We also hear that battery startup in a venue, which uh, we've been following for a couple of years now with its nickel hydrogen battery, already has seven gigawatt hours of orders. And we hear from a startup that takes plastic waste and turns it into hydrogen. So first stop is Andres. Uh, what exactly has the US Commerce Department decided and what are the repercussions? Well, it, this is a preliminary finding. The final finding is, is next year. And there, there's eight companies that they examined. Um, some of the, there, There's several major ones among that list. And it's, it's a 50-50 split. The Canadian Solar and Trina are two big ones that were found to be circumventing. In other words, these uh, products being sold from Southeast Asia are being defined as substantively manufactured in China, which means they should have the punitive anti-Chinese tariff applied to them. Whereas, of course, if it's not from China, then you can import it uh, much more normally. Now, there are also, though, there's also Jinko Solar and Hanha in Malaysia. Hanha. Those are big ones. Uh, those are big ones, and they're not circumventing. So, so, so they're only really knocking out half of the Southeast Asian trade, if this is what they go with uh, in, in the end. So, so let's just to, to say, make this clear for uh, the people listening. We know that President Biden has given a two-year moratorium on this decision, but at the end of that two years, um, suddenly you won't be able to import from the ones that were found to be circumventing, but you will be able to continue importing from those who were found not to be circumventing. Yeah, I think it has some effect on the, the overall countries, but only the companies active from these countries will be, be obliged to participate in various uh, information-gathering um, requests from the Department of Commerce as four, four of them successfully have and, um, and been found in the clear. So really the question is, um, what does the supply of, of modules look like? I mean, if you wipe out half of the Southeast Asian exports to, to the US, does it actually create an issue? Because the US will have first solar at home, it'll have a couple of other solar manufacturers at home, it'll be able to draw from South Korea, uh, it'll still have some of the Southeast Asian ones, it will, in my opinion, be able to import from India as well. I think on balance, there will be a problem. The supply will, just as a very rough estimate, starting from June 2024, which is when the moratorium expires, I think the supply might only be 75% of uh, the demand if the Department of Commerce doesn't back off from this. And that's just a very rough estimate. Okay. Now, what, what quality of evidence, as far as I understand it, they just send out a form, people fill it in, they look at whether or not they believe the answers 
uh, and make a, a conclusion. I mean, that's, uh, it doesn't sound like they've even spoken to these companies. Well, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of the companies didn't reply at all. I, I don't think that the four that, that are mentioned in the graph at the start of this article, I think they did reply uh, from what I read, um, but others didn't reply at all. So, uh, and I think, I wonder if from the Chinese perspective, from the perspective of these companies, I wonder if they even care very much because uh, there's certainly other places to sell to. Um, and, and they could fall afoul of other things like the Xinjiang um, forced labor allegations. And the, the, the whole thing about the Xinjiang forced labor allegations are mm. that if a company like a country like China does not um, allow you a clear view of that situation by supporting uh, uh, you with proper information, then you kind of end up um, getting confused between, oh, is this a human rights issue or is this a trade war? And, and, and uh, you know, we want to be clear about the parts of it which are human rights issues, and we want to be clear about which parts are a trade war. And, and uh, we, we're still not clear on that, are we? No, no. The reason I was even thinking about Xinjiang is because one of the people uh, commenting on it, which I didn't bother mentioning in the article, was uh, I think it was Matt Gates, one of the Republicans, and he started going on about Xinjiang and uh, at the same time saying, why is the Biden administration not doing more to, to keep out foreign imports from this trade? And, oh, but I don't support the energy transition anyway. So it's all very, it's all very muddled, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, I'm sort of skeptical. I mean, it's the confusion here. It's that it is this is not about forced labour. This is about um, dumping, um, and dumping is defined, as far as I understand it, as selling materials to your market, which undermine your labour market, uh, and and they have to be sold at below cost price. We we know they're not being sold below cost price. Yeah, I mean, if the original dumping uh, back in 2012, when this uh, original legislation came in against China, maybe China was uh, subsidizing the solar industry so much that it was you know, just an attack on other countries' trade. But it's managed to afford to do it for 10 years since then. It's, it's a real solar industry. And I just find it kind of strange that in, in an era when the whole energy transition is looking totally different when it, than it did 10 years ago, and certain, you know, the, the modules are totally different. The scale of development is totally different. Um, the technology has improved. Now there's the batteries and everything. And yet a, a contemporary agenda of a trade war with China that really came in under Trump, I think, uh, quite recently, is still coming back to a reinterpretation or a, a, re, a reinforcement of, of a 2012 law. It's all rather odd, especially since you can write new laws now. You've got uh, the Senate. I suppose you don't have the House now, but... Um, and during that time frame, the European Union had a similar action, uh, which wasn't exactly a tariff, but it was a, a, a minimum price rule, um, which it killed in 2018. So it was satisfied by 2018 that that was no longer a, a, an economic impairment. Now, actually, I have a very brief um, mention of Europe in this article. You can see the contrast. Europe is not having uh, interference with its trade, but on the other hand, its, um, its solar manufacturing efforts appear to be dying on the vine because Rec Group has paused its plans for the four gigawatt heterojunction factory in France. And that comes shortly after Maxim shuttering its plant in the country. Uh, that is quite a stark contrast with South Korea, India, uh, and the US. Although I think South Korea isn't hugely dependent on uh, trade protections, actually. But, you know. Is that primarily because of the recession and because of a kind of slowing in uh, 
the closing of solar deals? I don't know about the solar deals because at the end of the day, there's Europe's installing far more solar than we used to. It might be, uh, it might just be electricity prices. And it might also, yes, could be that. Uh, and it might also be just that China is managing continually to undercut uh, any European pricing out there. Um, and it might well be that we end up in the same situation, um, shooting ourselves in the foot by imposing tariffs for Europe against Chinese uh, modules and not being able to install any solar, which is exactly where America is going with this. Um, let's look on the optimistic side. There's a chance to build a supply chain, to build polysilicon factories, to um, get um, the bottom half of the industry right and, and, and start making modules in the US. Um, I mean, have we seen enough effort in this? And, and it, what's the time frame? I still um, agree with the with the uh, prediction that the Solar Energy Industry Association put out uh, about U.S. manufacturing, where they predicted that modules uh, would be reshored to the U.S. pretty quickly. Cells would then take a couple of years after that. Wafers would take a couple of years after that. And expansion of polysilicon beyond what already exists uh, historically um, would take through to 2030. So they say that you can have a fully indigenous US supply chain by 2030. I, I still think that's reasonable that, you know, because to be a viable wafer manufacturer in the US, you can't make wafers in the US and then sell them to the cell factories in China. That's just not going to work because <laughs> the wafer factories in China are, uh, outcompete you. But you can do it and, and there might actually be import tariffs. There are on polysilicon uh, into China. Um, so you have to wait before you can build a wafer factory. You have to wait for the cell factory to be built. So it's like a sequential thing, quite straightforwardly like that. I, I, I believe in it. And maybe one reason that the European uh, factory developments uh, are weak is because, well, maybe they're just looking at the US. Why, why would you build a factory in, the, in Europe where it gets subsidized, but it has to compete um, against Chinese imports? Or you can build it in the US. Do you believe the Commerce Department action begins at polysilicon or do you believe it begins at wafers or do you believe it begins at cells it seems to me it begins at cells and modules uh i think it's either cells or, or wafers i can't remember which i think it's the cell. i've written it in a previous article i can find out so it might be all right to buy chinese wafers as long as you do the clever stuff and turn them into cells and, and then eventually modules um, it might be right. We're not sure, but it, it certainly would be right to acquire polysilicon from anywhere. Well, polysilicon, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, well, the thing is that for now, you still have that historical um, polysil Western polysilicon capacity that didn't completely die from uh, Wacker and the other Western one, and that's about a hundred thousand tons um, of production capacity, which is enough to produce about thirty gigawatts or more of solar. So actually, the West still has enough uh, historical production capacity. I think it's split across the US. Self-supply. Both, both Europe and America could self-supply. Well, I think Europe... Uh, well, Europe isn't really... Okay. I mean, here we are. We're, in, we're, in this, we're, we're all praising solar. We're all saying that half of the American grid will be powered by solar by 2035 and whatever. And we are shooting, making it impossible to achieve that. Um, by a commerce department action, which is designed to protect a company with 200 employees. I mean, that's it, um, 
yes, I can understand um, that I, I can't see America getting out of this. I think they will stimulate the supply chain. They will they will try. They will compromise. And you're right. 2030 is is the time frame when this may not matter if we keep the amount of effort up. But at 2030, anybody who wants to get subsidies from the American government for, uh, for instance, from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is not going to be able to continue getting them past 2030. So whatever happens, come 2030, it's got to stand on its own, can't be government supported. And you're seeing, Euro you're seeing European solar installations um, outstrip US installations, which doesn't really have to happen. Um, the US is as big as Europe in various ways. Arizona is much sunnier than Spain. Um, it's just it's just this issue of um, interrupting the, the trade. Which, you know, there's there's the upside to that is that they'll have a manufacturing industry. Well, they, they may end up with a manufacturing industry that's like China. Remember, these companies tried to go public in America. Their margins weren't good enough. They weren't thought of highly enough. Their share prices came down. They went private again. They they run on razor thin margins. We know that. And so we're talking about building an industry for America that won't be valued very highly because it runs on razor thin margins. Mm. Um, I, I, this is anti-China, Chinese sentiment, largely. It's not really about making money or protecting American jobs. This is just anti-Chinese sentiment, as far as I can see. Let's move on. The company that we have been following for a while, a company called Enavenue, California startup. It's only about three or four years old. Um, uses a nickel-hydrogen battery. Um, the nickel-hydrogen battery is um, nothing to do with lithium-ion, but can compete with it uh, in stationary applications uh, like a battery energy storage systems um, and it has a lot of advantages we're starting to see those advantages take off there, there was a new form factor produced this is just because some customers they supply wanted a slightly bigger uh, larger battery with in a slightly different shape that's fine we just remind you uh, same claims apply to this as before um, 30,000 cycles absolutely maintenance free for at least 20 years but probably for 30. Um, there is no tendency for it to heat set fires or blow up as there is in lithium iron um, no no potential for combustion um, they've just come out with uh, what they call the energy storage vessel it is just as uh, a similarly designed but larger battery um, but in there they slipped in the fact that they now have seven gigawatt hours of orders already now, these might be spread over four or five years, but that's double what they've published up till now. Um, they have, they've put names on three or four orders, uh, but they have, but, but that's that only accounts for half of that seven gigawatt hours. Um, seven gigawatt hours is a lot. We, we talk about that when Tesla first started its gigafactory, it was going to make one gigawatt hour or seven low numbers of single digit gigawatt hours of lithium-ion batteries, here we have a startup is, is getting that kind of traction. Now, I know there are 30 or 40 startups in uh, in long-duration storage and competitive storage for four-hour storage, but none of them have that kind of order backlog. And that's 
the type of order backlog you can go out and borrow money against or get another tranche of investment whenever you like. Um, it's almost the sort of size where you can go public. So I'm just, um, we do know that these batteries are rock solid. Uh, we know that they've been used by NASA for 20 or 30 years to go up in spacecraft. Um, we know that they work. The trouble with them was that they use plat a platinum catalyst. Um, all that's happened is the founder of uh, the venue found a substitute for a, a platinum cat catalyst that was 1,000 times cheaper. Um, and they've been dogged and they've been well organized. And they've. Um, it looks to us like um, they, they, they've established the kind of order backlog which with which they can build a factory, a, a, an automated factory that is going to go from strength to strength to strength. Um, this, this is a threat to lithium-ion, and if one company can do it, maybe two or three can. And um, we've already seen recently $400 million um, being um, uh, given to Form Energy, uh, which has been a favorite of long-duration storage. Um, so it, it looks looks to us like there is no question, a call we've made some time ago, that, that non-lithium-ion batteries will have a future and will get below the price of lithium-ion. That, that's going to come true, and it's going to come true in the 2024-5 timeframe, well before the problems in uh, building a supply chain for American lithium-ion battery factories are solved, which is circa about 2027. So uh, there's definitely a new kid on the block, um, and, and it won't only be in a venue, but in a venue be on, will be among them. What type of energy density do they um, claim? About half of lithium-ion. I mean, you could not use this in a um, in a, a vehicle. You can't use this in a moving application. Um, so it's it's uh, it's not a, a strong energy density play. It can't compete with uh, LFP, even. So uh, LFP is um, is substantially uh, more energy dense, and, and LFP is only sixty percent the energy density of uh, NMC or NMA. So so definitely, it's not a candidate for non-stationary storage. But I'm assuming it's much safer than lithium ion. Oh, it's much safer. We had this conversation with Jorga Heinemann, the, uh, uh, the the CEO there, uh, and said, sure, do some investors worry that it's hydrogen, it will blow up? And he said, yeah, we had to prove that that didn't happen. And how did you do that? We put them in a fire, and that it, they um, when they breached, they turned into water and put the fire out. <laughs> so, so, you know, th this is a battery that doesn't make fires, it puts them out. Because uh, it, it's mostly water. Uh, it's effectively, it's a bit more like a fuel cell than, uh, than a battery, in that it, it is actually um, turning uh, the water into hydrogen. So then what applications do you think are likely? Applications, 100%, are, um, well, I mean, um, any distribution of energy, I mean, there's, there's one company using it in maritime applications to recharge electric forklifts. There's um, uh, another that's just using it for uh, uh, renewable support. I mean, Pine Gate Renewables has ordered 2.4 gigawatt hours over a four-year period, uh, where, where effectively it's just to flatten the stream with solar um, and, and or wind. Um, we, I mean, I think they're, they're talking to a lot of wind companies. 
uh, about including it in in their offering so, to again make sure when the wind doesn't blow even if it's for prolonged periods they can offer a flat um, supply of electricity so um, it's mostly for that um, yeah so it's battery energy storage systems um, both on the grid and in people's homes i mean at the moment the company's targeted at utility scale but you know we know that at some stage it's interested in turning its attention to the um, home market to effectively compete with Tesla in the power pack business. The beauty of it is you can build it into a wall and and leave it alone for thirty years. It's not it's 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 maintenance free. So that that's um, that's you know you can put it in a basement. You can put it in a safe living space. Um, we see pictures of uh, lithium ion batteries in uh, living rooms, and you think you'd be insane to have a lithium ion battery in your living room. It suddenly sets fire. You're, uh, you're in the line of fire. You know, actually, they have to be installed outside and away from human habitation, uh, you know, a home battery. So, yeah, I mean, all of that is, um, uh, although, although the lithium market is going to engineer out the danger from its products at some point, and the, sh the shift in that market is towards LFP, um, which operates at a lower current, which operates at lower temperatures, which has almost no um, um, likelihood of thermal runaway. It has some likelihood. It is feasible, but um, there's not a, a list of 200 of them happening across the country. So what does uh, what does Tesla use for its Powerwall? Uh, it uses the NMC. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and funnily enough, in China, uh, in Shang Shanghai, it uses LFP. All the cars that come out of Shanghai are supplied by um, CATL, and they uh, and it's um, it's all LFP. So much lower range. Again, sixty percent of the energy density and the same weight will will bring you sixty percent of the range. Uh, Chinese electric cars tend to have lower range. Um, all Americans are wanting uh, longer driving distances, and they need the energy density. So they, they, they need the more dangerous batteries in their cars. We're going to see the market diverge here. You know, the, the lithium ion that, that, that works in the grid market and the energy storage market will be a different lithium ion from that, that which drives cars. Um, that means you won't get the uh, economies of scale um, from the car market for much longer. Anyway, I'm just, you know, saying we made a call in our BESS report that this would happen. This is happening happening it's continuing to happen in the middle of a recession um reasonably uh, uh, impressed that um that companies are getting that organized without lithium ion um we're going to move on talk to uh, this company carbon meta um i mean I, I we've heard of plastic being turned into hydrogen i've never been quite sure that isn't isn't there some kind of um Leftover material is an issue. Isn't isn't the amount of energy an issue? I mean, how's carbon metal solve that? Okay. Yeah, so I had a chance to sit down with the CEO of Carbon Metal Technologies, Lloyd Spencer. Uh, he seemed like a very nice guy. He spoke very passionately about chemistry and um, about one's responsibility to think beyond the lifespan, which is the motivation behind a company. Um, so Carbon Metal Research, which is a, a subsidiary of Carbon Metal Technologies, came about from a research partnership with two British universities, Oxford and Cardiff. 
And the technology that came out of that is based on microwave catalysis, which basically takes plastic waste, heats it up, and with the help of um, iron and, and um, aluminum catalysts, uh, it separates the carbon and nitrogen. And then um, it basically sells them separately. So the hydrogen, obviously, in the hydrogen market, um, and the carbon as um, high value carbon products like carbon nanotubes that. Um, I believe they use as uh, anodes in lithium-ion batteries. Oh, well, they use carbon nanotubes. It can be used in television manufacture and all sorts of things. You can put them in solar panels to convert heat into light and, and get a higher yield. There's a lot. Carbon nanotubes is a whole new science. Yes, and um, he also claims that they can sell the hydrogen for $3.60 per kilogram, which is quite competitive. Obviously, the price hydrogen at the moment varies quite a lot, depending on the region and the color. So you're saying $3.60. Uh, this is manufactured where? No, so if basically their technology, right? So if they were to yeah, license... Yeah, so, so if, if the, it's just that in, in America, you can you can get a subsidy of $3 for making hydrogen. So that, that would be... It wouldn't mm. be three dollars sixty anymore that, if you if you used that subsidy. If you were making... If you built a manufacturing plant for this in America... No, yeah, but I mean, the business case obviously built probably um, a few years back. So those are just rough numbers. Uh, but the, the point is that, you know, the hydrogen, they can, the companies that buy the technology can sell it. It can be competitive, at least for now. Um, I can't quite call this green hydrogen because obviously it's, if it comes from plastics, which are made out of fossil fuels, it can't quite be called green hydrogen. So um, it's probably a... The need for a new color to be added to the uh, very large uh, spectrum of colors. <laughs> I think we'd just just call this microwave catalysis hydrogen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you want to be boring like that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, it, there's too many colors. It's just, it's, just uh, it's a confusing uh, uh, approach. Okay, um, and um, so this is, well, yeah, the thing is, when you talk about the cost, Surely there's a cost for clearing up plastic. If you if you take people's plastic, that they'll pay you to take that. Uh, uh, is that included in their business model? Um, the assumption in the business model is that the plastic comes in for free because uh, basically I asked him how did they get the plastic for the all the tests that they that they've done and, and everything, and he basically said that that's no shortage of plastic. So basically they just. No, I think the opposite is the case. I think that they um, they could ch charge to take people's plastic away and take that off the price of any hydrogen that was produced easily. And I think it, there's probably enough money in there. There's probably enough money in there to then store the residue if, if it's a, in a storable format of any carbon that's left. So I, I think um, that's the business model to uh, approach. But, I mean, they're scientists, and what they've done is... Um, they've made it work. That's stage yeah. one. What, 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 when, when is this going to become commercially viable? Well, at the moment, they're at the uh, kind of like pilot project stage. Um, so um, kind of getting their technology uh, proven. So we'll probably see something um, in the next next year or two from them. Okay. In terms of and then, and then, deals. And then it's a, a matter of, like all things in energy, and then it has to scale. And uh, then it has to find its efficiencies and then it has to find its slot in the market. Uh, yeah. We don't do enough on plastics. I mean, there are um, a number of organizations uh, bringing 
us information on plastics. We haven't found the bandwidth to put it into our product. I, I, I want to. We've written the odd story. I think it's a, um, an absolutely brilliant business case. A anyone who basically says uh, they'll pay me to take this away uh, and therefore that changes my business model is, um, you know, we have the prospect here of free hydrogen. Uh, yeah, but we take the plastic and because we don't put it back into the sea, people pay us to do this. Uh, oh, look, the hydrogen's almost free. I mean, that's that's going to be that's a winning mentality. Um, that's a uh, an internet business case. So um, yeah, I think I think we should applaud these and we should follow them, keep in touch with them every six months, just dip in and see if there's any progress. And this phrase, uh, microwave catalysis, is is like uh, it's not seen elsewhere. It's just it's just these people. So there's no precedent for it, and it, which is kind of a good thing. It means. We don't know what its potential is, what its limitation is. It could suddenly become a big thing just by itself, in my opinion. Um, yes, I think micro microwave-assisted catalysis has been around for a while. I think um, it's used in a number of uh, chemistries. Uh, I'm no expert on it. Okay. Um, it, it, this is um, this is taking a new tool and and apply it to the plastics toolbox. I mean, this is. A, a good thing. I, I, I doubt if this is utterly unique, uh, because as you say, it's coming out of um, of uh, um, higher education, and they tend to talk to one another, and people tend to move around from universities. Uh, and well, I, but, I mean, but, in terms of industry, I haven't. I, I don't hear any other industry application of this. No, I don't see no, like no, uh, no, not at all. Um, the um, but this has got to be the way to go. Um, I mean. I have talked to people about, um, I'm not sure if this is analogous to anaerobic digestion, um, you know, because that's another process which will eat virtually anything and turn it into harmless substances. Um, and I, I can't remember if that's been applied to plastics yet. But um, certainly, we'll keep an eye on this and we'll, we should do more on plastic. So if anyone comes across um, somebody pushing a new plastic process, I mean, one of the problems we're going to see is this. The oil industry, we've made the commitment. We believe that the lack, the, the uh, broadening of the use of electric vehicles, it leads to the end of the oil industry. Ten years from now, it will not be the same. If you can't take oil out of the ground, you can't build all the other products that you get from taking oil out of the ground after you've refined it. Plastics is one of those. Plastics become impossible to manufacture cheaply. So the price of plastics goes through the roof. If that happens, people stop using it. Um, this is a problem because number one, we don't want plastics in our world. Number two, we need them for everything. So we're going to have to resolve that somehow. Either we allow plastics in the world, in which case we've got to continue to dig up oil, or we, we find another way of making them. And then we find another way of breaking them down and putting them back into their component parts. It's um, it's an essential part of uh, sustainability. Um, this has to be solved. It's not. Is it as urgent as climate change? Possibly. It may be just as urgent. It's no good that we're looking at climate change for 30 years only, and then find that everyone's dying from their body absorbing plastics. Um, you know, we we need to solve both puzzles in parallel. That's the, the issue as we've seen it this week. Um, that's three stories we've picked out. There are many more stories in there. Um, there are many short items in there. 
And we don't have Simon here and normally picks one of the short items. I think we're going to end the podcast there and we'll be back again next week with another issue.